at 11 o'clock. Major developments when they occur. Next, Gene Shepard over WOR Radio 710, the talk of New York. WOR News Time, 910. is that's a that's a term that is always used in the new yorker and uh, i guess they're a little embarrassed to say fans <laughs> the word fan uh, bugs uh, the word fan really bothers uh, guys who prefer to use the word buff uh, i don't quite know what a buff is what what is the difference between a movie buff and a movie fan is there a difference well i guess the difference really is the difference between a man who goes to the movies or who goes to the cinema. You agree? I have noticed a very interesting phenomenon. May, may I make a point on that? That today's slob film is tomorrow's art film. I hate to tell you guys that, but that's the truth. That, that all the stuff that guys are paying exorbitant prices to see is the very stuff my mother was laughed at for digging when she was a movie fan. Uh, my mother was the only lady in the neighborhood who constantly went to see Carmen Miranda mu musicals. <laughs> Which no intellectual in his right mind would go to see a Carmen Miranda musical co-starring Cesar Romero. And uh, she went to see Carmen Miranda all the time. Now that stuff is playing in art films. It is. Uh, so, Shepard's rule of thumb, uh, that, the, that the true avant-garde of any society is the basic slob. He is discovering the stuff which ten years from now the avant-garde will discover, will enshrine, and sell at extremely high prices. Now, uh, I mean that. I really, I really very seriously mean that. That that any intellectual kid of a few years ago, I'm talking about a kid who, who grew up in a house, you know, who went to the news school and his mother, his mother uh, read uh, Russian novels and went to, the, went to the opera and always attended the Saturday morning concerts with the kid at Carnegie Hall. None of those kids, not one of those kids, I'll guarantee you, owned a tin wind-up Popeye doll that had a can of spinach in his hand. Correct? And you'd wind him up, and he would walk around, and he would, his voice would say, I am what I am. Did you ever hear that? He'd go, I am what I am. And he would raise the can of spinach. Now, I'll guarantee you, there is no intellectual, a kid from an intellectual-type family uh, at the time that that was really a genuinely popular item, owned one. But it's it's very popular today for the intellectual family to give the kid a toy bought at extremely high prices. That very toy sells for around $350 now. 
And the toys that the intellectual kid owned back in those days has long disappeared into limbo. Uh, various types of word games to teach him the language, you know, that sort of thing. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, Shepard's rule of thumb holds this, that today's slob sport is tomorrow's intellectual's concept. Uh, so uh, the, the basic difference between the movie fan and the movie buff is how you spell the word film. Uh, if, you fi if you spell it with a C, uh, you are a buff. If you call it a flick... Uh, you're a fan. Uh, if you call it the, if, if, if then there's another level that says, "I'm going to see Robert Redford tonight." That, of course, is is even below the level of a fan, and that's just called a klutz. Uh, so those all, they're, but they're all sitting in there watching the same thing. See, this this could very be very confusing to a visitor who is not committed to one or the other of the schools. It is. It's a very difficult problem. So, uh, <laughs> so be, be of good cheer. That don't feel embarrassed because you're a a uh, a Doris Day fan. Don't be embarrassed because you're the film that you saw, the Doris Day Rock Hudson film you saw, within a couple of years, a very short time, will be having a nostalgic revival among the intellectuals, and we great lions will assemble outside of the Fifth Avenue Cinema to see Doris Day, a genuine Doris Day film. Right? Uh, there will be a Doris Day festival. And uh, I, I, uh, I just uh, have to make that point very clear that uh, that, that we are aware of these things and that we cannot that we cannot escape them. Now, uh, how many of you are fans of cinema or film or or uh, cine literature? Well, uh, well, you mean you don't know Mr. Saris's great works on the subject, Pauline Kael? But uh, all these people are writers about uh, the film. But that's not quite the same as the film itself. No way. Uh, it's a very different thing. It's like writing about sex is not exactly sex. Reading about it is even less so. So, <laughs> I mean, you got to make the differentiation, friends, here between the real thing, uh, the fan literature, and so forth that goes with it. Now, uh, on the other hand, I, I went into a place the other day. Now, my mother, my, now this, this again, uh, again illustrates Shepard's basic rule of thumb that Yesterday's slob uh, favorite is tomorrow's important new discovery in the intellectual avant-garde world. What do you think I found in this store? This thing sold. I couldn't believe it. There was a 1938 mint-condition copy of Photoplay. And on the cover was Clark Gable. And Clark Gable was, was kissing Myrna Loy. And it said on the top, it says, Inside the real Clark Gable, an exclusive smash story inside. Does Jackie Cooper really smoke cigars? And the various other stuff like that. See, what do they want for? Thirty-five bucks. My mother was a was a <laughs> my mother was a charter subscriber to Photoplay, and she was embarrassed about it because she was always put down. See, she had she had other friends, intellectual type ladies who would read The Atlantic, uh, who would read Harper's, and my mother would sit there, you know, and she'd pretend she's reading Harper's, but under the doily. Next to <laughs> next to the end table was always the current issue of Photoplay. Now, of course, uh, Photoplay is sought after. You realize that. Very few people seek after 1937 copies of, uh, say, Atlantic Monthly. But they sure as hell look for Photoplay. Who was right then? Atlantic Monthly or Photoplay? It's hard to know. I'm making and drawing no value judgments. 
<laughs> None at all. But uh, while we're on the subject, though, of, of uh, the cinemas and the buffs, uh, I uh, I must say that uh, I, I go to, you know, I've gone to movies ever since I was, a, you know, I can't even remember the first movie I ever saw. I was going to movies all, all my life. Now, uh, it's hard to say what qualifies you as an expert on a movie. Now, what, the, what qualifies you as an expert on movies? Very difficult. Maybe it's because you've got to get a good publisher and you, 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 you have to say you're an expert. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's it. Say you're an expert. And by God, if you say it enough, you'll be one. And uh, that's all there is to it. So, nevertheless, the film, you know, everybody's gone to movies all their lives and, and the one way or another. But they, I, I'm talking about, when I talk about film literature, I'm talking about a substrata of film literature. Not literature about films. But have you run into the phenomena when you go down sometimes uh, you'll, you'll be down at the bookstore and you'll, you'll be where paperback books are sold and you'll all of a sudden come across a title that is the name of a film. Well, now, the first thing you think of offhand is that that must be the book that they made the film from. Quite often, it's the reverse. That's a new thing, or most people think it's new, where they make a novel, quote, out of the film. There was never any novel like that, you see, before the film was made. In other words, the film was an original film script. And so after the film went out and became popular, somebody came out and says, well, let's have a, uh, let's, let's write this novel called The Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And uh, so then, then they just take the script of the film, you know, and they bat out this uh, pseudo-novel in about uh, ten minutes, and it sells for Billy B. Dan. Did you know that? That that's, that's a whole new substratum. Now, you, most people would think that's new, right? Okay. All set now? It's culture time here at the old culture corner. So would you please bring on the the, no, the first one? Not not the classical. Give me give me the uh, film music, please. It's culture time. Cinema division. Why there is hardly a man alive today whose brain hasn't been rotted by the output of Hollywood. <laughs> Do you agree? <laughs> Yes, countless illiterate writers turning out countless illiterate scripts acted by ex-ribbon clerks and put together by ex-salesmen of fox fur scarves. Such is the art form of America. This is a salute tonight to the great movie producers of past, present, and future. Those ex-used car dealers who went west and discovered where the gold was. <laughs> That's right. Oh, the excitement, the thrill of the chase. The chase, of course, being an enormous Moorish castle atop the hills overlooking Wiltshire Boulevard with a 4,000-acre swimming pool and genuine Greek statues. flocking by the hundreds of thousands to see the now classic output of these great primitives in the world of man's art. <laughs> hey, Manny, what's that girl doing here in a second from the end? I don't care whether she's your sister or not. She ain't gonna appear in no pictures of mine. That, by the way, was an actual quote from a famous film mogul whom I once knew in his declining days. 
<laughs> Reset that, will you, please? Buddy, did you know that I knew a couple of great film titans? I'll tell you sometime about it, Jerry. I've known more people than you could ever believe. The reason that I, I, I wanted to do this tonight, get it set in there, Al, is uh, somebody somebody uh, sent me a, a book. They they were uh, like I am. I'm I'm a inveterate browser among old books. I cannot resist it. I cannot. I've tried. <laughs> Some people can't resist browsing among old records. You know, records they see recorded. This this never stops me. I never I never stop. It's I'm not that interested. Once in a while I'll stop. You know, but the, it, it's not the. Uh, the, the, the pull that exerts on me. There's two things that I cannot pass without feeling an urge to stop and go rummage. One is a place where they sell used books. Any kind. I just love to look at them. Uh, and I almost always buy them. And uh, incidentally now, uh, it's gotten so bad that I have two apartments, one for my books and the other one where I live. And, uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, and I, 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 that's the way it is. The other thing that I cannot pass, and under, uh, under any circumstances, and I think I don't share this with too many, is a used car lot. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to buy one, but I just can't uh, can't walk past it without thinking, oh, well, I'm just going to take a look around and see what he's got, you know. <laughs> and the next thing you know, you're way in the back rows there, with the, the ones that are in the shadow where they don't have the light bulbs lit, and that's where you see some interesting cars, let me tell you. Back seats are bloodstained. You can see the bullet holes through the trunk. But uh, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, uh, this guy went through this old used bookstore scene. He sent this off to me. He sent this a long time ago. He came in. And he sent it off to me. He says, Shepard, he said, uh, take a look at this if you're interested in, in film literature. And here I've got it now. This is a novel made, a novel made from... A film that was a big hit film, apparently, back in the 1920s. Obviously, a silent film. And uh, here is the novel. And it was made back in the days when many, many films were made about flying. Flying was a, was a big deal in those days. And it's called Jimmy Allen in the Sky Parade. And in fact, there's even stills from the film in here. Great-looking stills. Uh, and I will read the opening lines of this this thing, and I will read this. is Jimmy Allen in the Sky Parade, novelized by Wallace West. Now, there's an obvious pen name, if I ever heard one. <laughs> Wallace West. <laughs> yeah, illustrated from the photoplay, produced by Adolf Zukar. A paramount picture. Read the book. See the picture. Curiously enough, it was published in The Village on 8th, uh, 8th Street. And uh, here it goes. You all set now? You ready for the exciting? Give me a little of mood music. Let's set it up there. Come on. Let's set it up there. We are now entering the halls of a silent movie house. This, by the way, was not that early. They did not have pianos playing, but we're just setting the mood, you know, okay? That's called artistic license, right? When you get that down at the city hall, of course, you're $4. Here it goes. An artistic license. It's a three-year license. I have to explain my jokes to you guys. <laughs> ah, yes. Remember, this is in stark black and white. Chapter 1. 
Step right up this way. Step this way, ladies and gentlemen. Step right this way, ladies and gentlemen. Step up, shouted the lean and dapper chap in the check suit as he smiled dazzlingly upon the crowd of country folk who jammed the midway of the county fairgrounds. Now, sirree, this is no swindle, no falsification of facts. Right here you will see a scientific theory, tested and proved. Step right this way. Step up, step up. A few people began to desert the other attractions and gather around the speaker. Prominent among them was a small, tousle-haired boy eating a candied apple on a stick. That's right, my friends, that's right. Step right up and improve your knowledge of science. Step right up, step this way, cried the barker. We shall attempt to prove... Right now, this afternoon, right here before your very eyes, a scientific principle. We will prove that the ham, the human hand, is quicker than the human eye. We will prove that the human hand, I repeat, is quicker than the eye. Then, as the onlookers laughed and groaned at this stale inducement, he calmly took three walnut shells and a bean from his pockets and deposited them on a small table in front of them. And then, perceiving that the inquisitive child was still present, he frowned and added, Run along, little boy, run along. It's no place for you, kid. As the youngster made no move to go, the sleight-of-hand artist was forced to resume his spiel as he manipulated the bean and the shells. Step this way, step this way, right this way, ladies and gentlemen. See if you can find the little bean. Look for the little bean. No trick, no flim-flammery. Just find the little bean under one of those shells and earn a quarter. Two bits, 25 cents, one-fourth of a dollar. See if you can find the bean under the shells. I know where it is, volunteered the boy, pointing. Now listen, Sonny, it just happens that miners are not allowed to gamble. Yeah, so run along, kid, and by the way, he'll buy any chance over 21. No, was the discouraged answer. And you haven't got a quarter to bet anyway, have you, kid? As the boy shook his head forlornly, a member of the laughing crowd stepped forward, quarter in hand. Uh, where's the bean, kid? He asked. It's under that one. The boy indicated the left-hand shell. Sourly, the barker lifted the pod. Under it nestled the bean. Other members of the crowd began capitalizing on the boy's quick eyes, and the result was, 15 minutes later, the spieler's pockets were empty, while his tormentor had a handful of dimes donated by the winning yokels. Now, just a minute, just a minute, kid, the discomfited gambler was saying as he gamely searched his clothes for more money. Just a minute, I'm not licked yet. The hand is quicker than the eye, no matter what this young squirt says, and I'm going to prove it to you, the hand is quicker... His speech was drowned out then by the sound of an airplane, an approaching airplane, roaring overhead. It roared overhead. Sounds like it's having motor trouble. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. You gave me... <laughs> Come on, give me that airplane. That's important it is. His speech was drowned. No, get the one that says, uh, flight over the trenches. You just got me the sound of an engine. Come on, come on, Al, for God's sakes. That's what happens when you're Adolf Zucker. You're always having trouble with your production assistants. All right, bring it up. Just bring that sound up. This is important. Okay, the guy says, I'm not licked yet. The hand is quicker than the eye, no matter what that young squirt says. And just at that point, his speech was drowned out by the sound of an approaching airplane. The crowd looked up and then ducked. That's a ship, part of an air circus. Roared overhead, within ten feet of their heads. The gambler jumped backward, tripped, knocked over his table and fell on it, completely demolishing his layout. You crazy idiot! He yelled as he regained his feet. I'll have the law on you for that! The airplane roared away. 
That was my dad. The boy volunteered proudly. Over there. Over there. That man walking with the man close on the ground. Well, he's my friend. And the other one's my godfather. That was my daddy. Well, that's all too much for me, kid, was the cold answer. Well, let's right, go right over and have a talk with your parent. He stormed toward the racetrack of the fairgrounds, which had been converted into a temporary flying field. And the plane had landed. And he walked up to the airplane and said, Are you the parent of this brat? He demanded of manly Scott Allen as the latter climbed out of his plane and pulled off his goggles. Has he been annoying you? Scott's voice was apparently severe. Oh, has he? This kid, I'll tell you, he's got eyes like a cat. Cleaned me out at my own shell game. And then you come along and make me fall all over my equipment and smash it. Mister, I want five dollars damages. I want it now. Oh, five dollars is one of my fondest dreams also, Scott answered with a laugh. No money, volunteered Speed Robertson, another pilot in the air circus as he sauntered up, grinning impishly. No money? Oh, boy, but we could take you as a partner, buddy. You mean a job? cried the gambler in delight. Why, your gang could do with a barker, come to think of it. And then you'd need a mechanic, too, which there is no better than your newfound friend. You guys can call me Flash Lewis. An ace mechanic? I was a mechanic on airplanes when they were flying over the western front. And I learned the gambling game at the knees of a master. And I'm one of the greatest spielers in the world. You sure could use me. Are you really a mechanic? Scotty's blue eyes opened in amazement. Oh, am I a mechanic? Flash turned to speed. He asked me if I'm a mechanic. Why, gentlemen, if it weren't for my one great passion, I would at this very moment be employed probably as chief mechanic at the Lockwood Aircraft Plant. Aha, uh-huh. was it drink? Winked Scotty at speed. Alas, no. Alas, no, I never could afford a drink. Flash bowed his head. The twinkling nutshells. I'll tell you, I can't resist them. I can't resist them nutshells. And I never know when I... I never know when to stop when I'm losing. The foreman at the plant seemed to resent it, and maybe you'll give me another chance. It won't cost you a thing. Flash, consider yourself hired. Grunted Speed. We didn't have any money to pay our last mechanic, so he quit today. There, my good fellow, he presented Flash with the dollar bill. There is an advance on your salary, probably the last you'll ever get. <laughs> Hey, wait a minute, cried Scotty. What are we going to eat with? You just spent our last buck. Well, our new barking mechanic is going to take us to dinner, was the reply. The four of them were seated at a hot dog stand when Casey Cameron, the third member of the War Aces Flying Circus, dashed up, towing a pretty girl by the wrist. Scotty, speed, cried the beautiful girl. I've been looking everywhere for you. Aha, meet the new meal ticket, Scotty replied. Mr. Aloysius Lewis flashed to us our new barking mechanic. At that point, a plane once again roared overhead as one of their friends... That's it. One of their friends roared over the diner in salute. There goes Ace Murphy! Ace, we'll get you yet! cried Scott. Thank you. That's enough. Boy, you had trouble getting that airplane, Keith. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> do you want it? Do you want it? Now that was the that is a novel. That's the opening. That was not made for kids. That's what I, I will point out to you. Uh, incidentally, if you want to read some childish novels uh, of that type that are still done today, there's one out called Banachek. It's really unbelievable. Uh, it's written with no more style than this. But this was the opening 
scenes out of a movie called The Sky Parade. Have you ever heard it? Ever seen it? Well, apparently it was made. And uh, let's see if he lists the casts. Uh, let me see here. If he lists the cast. Uh, no, the cast is not listed, although they're all here in pictures. Maybe you recognize them because there's some pictures from the from the film. And uh, here, here, here's the next scene. Uh, bring me a little of that. Uh, bring me the airplane. We got to set the mood with the airplane scene. Okay. See, they, remember they have a flying circus, and if you're interested in the aircraft, it looks like the airplanes that they have here are travel airs, which was a biplane of the twenties. Travel airs. They also have. Wait a minute. One of the planes shown in the picture here is a Curtis Robin. So uh, they have a lot of great airplanes in this movie. I'd love to see that movie. By the way, can I hold it? Hold it. Hold it. Thank you. Thank you, Al. That's enough. Uh, that's another hobby that that uh, secret little hobbies that people have that other people don't even know about or even suspect. Whenever I I see a uh, movie listed, I happen to be a pilot, and I'm really into airplanes. And whenever I see it listed in old television, you know, like uh, like late late movies. Uh, on Channel 2 or whatever, you know, really late movies. They always show them then. When they're having an old aviation picture of this type, of course, this was earlier than the ones that you usually see, I always watch them for one reason. I wonder how many of you realize that many of the airplanes that you see in those films are genuine historical aircraft. And many of them do not even exist. Not a single example of that aircraft exists today, even in museums. There are many aircraft that just don't exist any longer, and the only place that uh, the historians, film historians, can see them, not film historians, but I'm talking about aviation historians and, and historians in general, can see these aircraft is in films. And I'll give you an example of that. There is no known existing model of the aircraft that most of you are probably familiar with because of the, uh, the Snoopy's uh, whole big thing of uh, the Red Baron. Well, the Red Baron flew an aircraft uh, in the last stages of his career. That's what he's generally associated with, although he made most of his famous victories in a different type of airplane, an albatross, as a matter of fact. Uh, he did not fly a Fokker DR-1, which is the Fokker triplane, till the last phases of his career. Uh, that, that aircraft, which you generally see him pictured with, the red DR-1 triplane, there is not a single known example of that aircraft in the world. There are several replicas in which somebody has actually built one, uh, but it's not genuine. It's, uh, uh, they're replicas, but there's not a known example of the aircraft itself in existence. Do you know that the several pieces of that aircraft that the, the Baron was shot down in, though, do exist? Did you know that... Uh, that uh, in a museum, uh, there is the actual cockpit seat that the Baron was in at the time he was killed, uh, along with his flying suit uh, that he was wearing when he was killed, are in a museum. Along with the aircraft engine that was in that plane at the time it went down, uh, but that airplane, uh, I don't suppose I... I hope I'm not boring you with this, but that, the Fokker triplane was a copy of a very successful English airplane, the Sopwith triplane. 
which was a variation of the Sopwith Camel, but it was a triplane and an extremely effective fighter. And the Fokker triplane was a copy of that. Uh, the the uh, the Fokker tripe, or rather the Sopwith triplane, hit the Western Front like a, like a unbelievable bomb. It it was uh, indestructible, and the Germans quickly attempted to copy that plane. And their copy was never as good as the original. The Sopwith triplane was actually a much better airplane than the Fokker triplane, which was treacherous, dangerous airplane, and not as effective as the Sopwith. However. The, there is no known example of that airplane existing. However, there are two films that are known of, of, the, of the triplane actually in action. There is one film that, uh, that was made by Hollywood, interestingly enough, back in the 20s. One of these Hollywood films, just a, you know, a, a, obviously a, a hack film. But the, they had gotten several Fokker triplanes. At that time, there were some existing. Uh, back in the 20s, and they had brought them over, and they got them, they were running, and they were usable, and they appear in two combat sequences of a uh, of one of these films. Whatever happened to those airplanes has not since been known. They have disappeared completely, and they no longer exist. But the film of the plane itself uh, is often used in all kinds of uh, very serious ways, taken out of this hack film. The film itself is no, nothing. But that footage is extremely important uh, because it's it's the only known footage, close-up footage, of a Fokker triplane actually flying and doing aerobatics, a, a real Fokker triplane. That's interesting. Now, a lot of that stuff, I don't know whether Pauline Kale knows about this. <laughs> I'm sure she doesn't. But the, the value of many films transcends the artistic value of the film because of what of what was on that film, the actual... Now, another example of that. Do you know that a, a film, which is generally... Uh, uh, who, who, who thinks of a, a Class B film was shot on the flight deck, actually while it was in flight, of the Hindenburg flying the, the great dirigible that exploded and burned in New, in New Jersey... Uh, back in the mid-1930s, which was a great international incident, one of the best records of the Hindenburg, uh, actually in flight, uh, the, the flight deck, the, the salon, everything else, shots out of it, uh, looking down at the ocean, the, the ship in flight on a transatlantic flight, uh, was in a Charlie Chan movie. <laughs> the movie itself is terrible, but it's called Charlie Chan at the Olympics. If you ever get a chance to see that, Charlie Chan at the Olympics, he is on the, the dirigible Hindenburg <laughs> in the Olympics. It's fantastic scenes. Now, uh, that's what I'm trying to say, that, that when you look at films for different reasons, you see all kinds of great stuff that have nothing to do with the film. So I always watch old films for the aircraft that are in them, because you, there's a lot of those airplanes, I simply say, they do not exist. And there they are, taxiing around a field, the guys getting in, flying it off. And uh, they even, in some cases, you can hear the sound of the engines and so on. Now, I'll give you an example of that. During the 1930s, historically, America had a lot of very interesting pursuit ships that, uh, that are no longer, none of them exist. All kinds of strange observation airplanes, uh, low-winged Lockheeds, and very curious uh, aircraft 
that, uh, by our standards, very interesting aircraft. None of them exist at all, not even in the, in the museums. And yet you'll see them being piloted by uh, uh, Chester Morris. <laughs> he's, he's flying a... Uh, now, one of the examples of that type of thing uh, is... Uh, now, most people know the sequences out of, uh, out of King Kong when the air, airplanes are flying around the, uh, the, the, actually the Empire State Building. And when that was filmed, the Empire State Building was a brand new, very exotic building. It had all the impact on people as, say, the World Trade Center now. It was a big new building, and, and, and here these planes were flying around. Now, most people uh, never look at the planes. They always look at King Kong or Fay Ray. Now, what kind of planes were they? Very interesting thing. To, to a- aviation fans, it's very interesting what they were. They were flying uh, uh, surplus U.S. Uh, armed forces equipment in that. You're curious. And they were not World War I airplanes. I'll have to give you that bit, too. <laughs> Most people think all biplanes were World War I planes. No way. <laughs> in fact, some of the great airplanes made today are biplanes. Did you know that? Among them, the Pitts, a great uh, aerobatic plane. Uh, but uh, you know that there was a plane made uh, during World War One. if you're curious about, a, a quadraplane that had four wings. Uh, you, you know the triplane, which is a tri- the Fokker tripe. Now, uh, the other day, now, I, I was watching a, a movie, just happened to flick it on, and the people got into an airplane that is legendary today, a legendary aircraft. And it was just in a casual pa- walk past scene. Uh, they went to this airport and they were flying. It was the whole point was that this detective was going out to the coast, and he was going to get the uh, get the bad guy. The bad guy had gone out to the coast, and he decided he had to fly out there. Well, so he goes out to the airport, and the whole scene of them getting on the airplane. Now, what did he get on? Very interesting. <laughs> he got on an airplane that was one of the very few major commercial biplanes. In other words, did you know that that the airlines in this country at one time, and I'm not talking about way in the ancient days, I'm talking about, you know, comparatively modern, that they had a biplane that was used, that was a, it was built as a commercial airplane. And these, none of these exist to, to, as far as anybody knows anywhere because it would be very difficult to maintain this thing, this giant airplane. And it was a huge airplane. And uh, I'll give you a clue. It was made by Curtis. What was the name of the plane? In those days, they named airplanes. They were not called by numbers as they are today. You know, 747, DC-3, DC-8, DC-10. This was a Curtis what? Okay, it was a Curtis Condor, and uh, <laughs> now uh, and and it was very elegant. Now this this was fascinating because the scene then shifted inside the cabin, and the guy got in the cabin. Now we tend to think of air travel today must be much more elegant today than that. Forget it, friends. Inside the Curtis Condor, it was a sleeper, and they had staterooms inside of it. The guy had his own stateroom. It was a little walnut-like teakwood stateroom that he went into. He had a bunk, and he went out, and he met this girl that he was with. She was in another stateroom, and they had 
dinner in the dining room on the airplane. And they sat down, and here you could see the clouds going by outside, and you could see the ground below, and they were being served an elegant wine, and it had flowers on the table, and the, the waiter, who was the steward, was wearing a white coat and came and offered them this elegant champagne, and they were flying west on the airplane. And that was in a Curtis Condor. Uh, <laughs> now, now, where would you see this but in a movie? No way. Uh... I also like to look for old cars, great-looking cars that you see occasionally uh, in, in movies. But the, but the aircraft, the aircraft is even more interesting because most of the old cars you can see in various museums. You know, people have re restored these various cars, but not so with the airplanes. Uh, they're really rare. Uh, in fact, one of the craziest scenes I've seen in a long time was a, was a scene out of an old movie that involved... An autogyro chase. Now, an autogyro was an interesting aircraft. It was a, it was halfway between an airplane and a helicopter. And this was an autogyro that was roaring right down Broadway, <laughs> flying between the buildings. And this autogyro with this great big revolving uh, prop on top. It looks it looks to to the untutored eye it looks like a helicopter, but it is not. And it's got this great big uh, prop on top, just like a helicopter. <laughs> and he's roaring down Broadway, and he's pursuing the bad guy who is escaping in a cab. Now, how about that for a scene? And he's roaring right down Broadway in an, in an autogyro, a very rare airplane, an extremely dangerous aircraft, by the way, and one that cost many a guy to lose his skin. Uh... Another great airplane you see often is the Tin Goose. What is the Tin Goose? You mean you don't know what plane is called the Tin Goose? Well, that's the Ford Trimotor. That's called the Tin Goose. And uh, that, uh, that airplane is deafening inside because it's got flat aluminum siding. When you get in the airplane, the vibration of it. And it's got, it's got wicker seats. Uh, for the for the passengers, for lightness, very elegant wicker seats. And a friend of mine has gotten two wicker seats from Fokker Trimotors, and he's made them into a dining room set, you know? WOR New York. Greetings, my friends. This is Carlton Fredericks, the program...